Welcome. So this is the uh, the last installment of our series on the spiritual disciplines. And uh, yeah, that sounds about right. These are the after we cover these two, we will have covered seven of seven of the spiritual disciplines. Um, for tonight, we're going to cover a, a last couple. Oh, you know, I'm going to start all over now that you guys are here. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, we uh, we didn't. We just had to rearrange the room. That's all. So tonight's going to be our last installment of the Spiritual Discipline series. And um, the two disciplines that we're going to cover tonight are very, uh, very closely linked to one another. And so as we talk about them, my goal is not necessarily to try to keep these two separate. Uh, but instead to still use the format that we've been using to study each of these disciplines in terms of exposing ourselves to some biblical information, make sure we understand what it is that the discipline is, and then get some ideas of how to implement it into our life a little bit better. Um, but we'll, we'll also, in a sense, be using these disciplines as a way to close our whole series. Uh, I don't know if you remember, or if you were here the first time around, but when we talked about spiritual disciplines and I introduced the series, we talked about the reality that when we use the spiritual disciplines, this is not to turn us into some type of stoic monk that is cloistered in a monastery somewhere, completely unuseful to society, but completely holier than thou. The, the goal of the disciplines is the opposite of that. The goal of the disciplines is to be more useful to the society that's around us. And as a result, the more spiritually disciplined we, uh, we allow ourselves to be, the more joy-filled and joyous we become. And that's uh, ultimately what these last two disciplines are really going to express. How do we now translate our disciplined self in such a way that we are expressing that appropriately. And so what we're going to be covering is worship and celebration. Starting with worship, go ahead and grab your Bibles, and we're going to look at a couple passages. Again, just like with all of the disciplines, we're not going to look at an exhaustive list of every passage that you would need to know regarding each of these topics, but a couple of passages just to get a general idea that would be helpful for us by way of starting. Plus, uh, if we gather as a group of believers and don't consult the Bible, I get nervous. So I think it's always a good idea to, to crack a Bible before we, before we go. So um, let's look first at Matthew 4.10. At Matthew 4.10. Uh, and we see this. So this is in the context of Jesus has gone through... You'll remember we referenced this when we talked about fasting. He's gone through a 40-day period of fasting. And during this 40-day period of fasting... Satan has been tempting him. During one of the temptations, uh, let's, uh, let's pick it up uh, at verse 8. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Verse 10 is our key verse. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, it's important. I don't know if you've ever learned this concept before, but a lot of the way in which 
the Old Testament is written, especially in the poetic books and in the prophetic books. So in books of poems like Psalms and Proverbs and the prophetic books like the big major and minor prophets, um, they write in couplets of information, whereas the first line will say something and then the second line will somehow reinforce the first line and it will reinforce it either by paralleling it with an idea or by sharing the opposite that then kind of hammers home the main point. It's important for us to start with the obvious point, you shall worship the Lord your God. But it's interesting that the verse that Jesus uses to respond to Satan in this temptation carries with it the couplet, and him only shall you serve. I want you to keep that idea in your mind as we start to talk about worship that the worship of God, according to Jesus' answer here, somehow has, has maybe a little bit more to do with service than you might normally think. Let's put that idea in the file and come back to it. Let's go over to John 4.23. John 4 is a chapter that we've referenced multiple times in our study I have a tendency to jump to it in sermons. There's so much in John 4 uh, to be learned from the way that Jesus thinks and the way that Jesus interacts with the world. Um, in verse 23, when Jesus is responding to the woman in terms of where he should be worshiping or where she should be worshiping, Jesus changes the point and says this, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. One of the things that is interesting to point out here, I think we have a tendency sometimes, maybe, maybe it's just me, um, I focus on the portion of the verse that talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth. That is an important part of the verse to, to focus on. But I think it's also interesting to note the second half of the verse that we read, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God, the God of the universe, actually is seeking worshipers. He's looking for worshipers, which is very interesting to me, especially when it comes time for me to try to understand what does it look like for me to serve and please my God. Go to Mark 12. This will be a verse that's probably pretty familiar with you or familiar to you. If we go to Mark 12, Make sure I'm in the right chapter here. Yeah. In Mark 12, starting in verse 28. Hi there. Uh, starting in verse 28, Jesus being tested again by some of the religious leaders. Mark 12, 28 starts this way. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's referred to as the Shema. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Think about this. The number one most important commandment, when somebody comes up to Jesus and says, what's the, the most important thing I should be doing? It is to love God with all parts of you. To love God with all parts of you. But that loving probably takes on a couple of different forms. For one last verse, just before we kind of then jump into kind of explaining 
Um, more specifically, what we're going to be talking about, if you go over to Hebrews 13, If we go to the writer of Hebrews is finishing up the letter. And in uh, chapter 13, verse 15, we read this. Through him, speaking Jesus, speaking of Jesus, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's interesting. Like I said, there's no, uh, there's no effort that I'm making right now to try to share with you every single passage in the Bible that talks about the importance of worshiping God. Instead, I've selected a couple of passages to pull out a couple of points that we need to bear in mind are related to one another. We took a look at the fact that we shall worship God and that that worship somehow takes on a form of service, that God is seeking worshipers, that somehow the most important thing that we could be about would be loving God with all parts of us. And the writer of Hebrews says, let us continually offer up praise and refers to that praise as what? A sacrifice, which is really interesting, right? I'm not going to spend an entire evening um, kind of talking about the significance, bearing in mind that this was written to a people that would really understand all things Jewish. And so the word sacrifice would carry all kinds of connotations in their mind. But to refer to the praise of God as a sacrifice and to define it as such as to say it is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So it somehow has to do with the things that we say and do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, which has a tendency to me to seem a little bit like service, a little bit like what it is that we might be looking for. Let's go through worship defined and kind of unpack a little bit what we're talking about. Here's where, if you like doing the handouts, you're going to start seeing some blanks. Worship. Yes, absolutely. This will be the first time in a bit that we've needed some more. I've got all kinds more. Take them all. Uh, worship defined. I think probably the simplest definition to start to work with so we can explain it is to show reverence and adoration. To show reverence and adoration. Worship is the type of word that is, a, it's a very churchy word. That's, you know, I think that's a, a, a usable adjective, right? Churchy. It's a very churchy word. It's a word that we throw around with great regularity in the church. It's a word that I wonder sometimes if it might have lost its meaning a little bit because we use it so much. And, or, or maybe it doesn't necessarily lose its meaning as much as maybe sometimes its significance gets lost on us because we use the word so much. To show reverence and adoration, what we're starting to see in the text, or what we're reminding ourselves about tonight, is that that, that might take on some different forms. Now, inasmuch as there are a variety of words used in the text that are translated, that I, I could start throwing around different Greek words and some different Hebrew words. Instead, what I want to do uh, is work with 
where the English got their word worship, because I think in that is a very, a very important idea. This is point B1. The history of the word worship in English is the ascribing of worth. The ascribing of worth. You could almost say the, the most raw form of the word would be worth-ship. And we've taken out the TH in the middle because that makes it a little bit difficult to say. Worth-ship. You end up spitting on your neighbor. And instead, uh, we just kind of keep the were apart. But ultimately, what it means in English is to ascribe worth. Point two, believing its object to be of such great worth that words and actions should be changed. Believing its object to be of such great worth that words and actions should be changed. I think that's definitely part of it, um, where you are now bringing the absolute best that you have because you are trying to attribute as much worth as you possibly can. Do you think we've lost that? Do I think we've lost that? I think sometimes the focal point and the expression of worth take on different, uh, take on different uh, emphases given the circumstance in which the worship is occurring. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a my moment. Dad used to tell my brother, he was the only son, that he needed to be a man of worth. He needed to be a man of worth, mm -hmm. okay. That was a phrase back in, like, I guess, the 60s, maybe? A man of worth. Money. No, he wasn't talking about money. He was talking about, you know, a man of worth, a cat yeah, character. And, yeah. Is that, uh, would you best... Would you explain that, like, as a, is that synonymous to being an honorable person? Mm -hmm. I guess so, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I haven't heard that phrase. A man who stands, you know. I think honorable, it's, it would overlap with honorable, but I think worth is even deeper, like, broader. Like, it's not just honorable, but it's also, I think there's a certain implied action. I think there is as well. And that's one of the points that I'm trying to draw out. And, but as soon as we start to, that's actually a really good transition to what I wanted to say next. Look at how I wrote this point in, in point two. You'll notice that the object, that, that worship inevitably has an object. But notice in the way in which we've defined worship so far, it does not necessarily require a deity, does it? It doesn't require a god. You can worship a lot of different things, right? You can believe that something is of such great worth that, it is, that it's deserving of changing our words and our actions. And one of the ways in which we can most clearly see what it is that we worship, that which we ascribe the most worth, is what is it that most changes and guides our words and actions? Here's another interesting point that as I was doing some research for this, maybe it's, it won't be as interesting to you. Um, look at point C here. I want to contrast the worship of God with idolatry. Point one, when I typed into Google, what does worship mean? They gave me the definition in point one, to show reverence and adoration in parentheses for a deity or honor with religious rites. But then when I typed into Google, what is idolatry? Point two, extreme admiration 
love or reverence for something or someone. Our culture, now I'm not necessarily saying inherently that Google is the prime source of all things culture. However, it is a good indicator of how our culture is currently using these words. And our culture, as a result of Google's explanation and definition of these words, is that worship and idolatry are essentially the same thing. Now, informed Christian who is willing to listen to Scripture and willing to understand, what is the key distinction between worship and idolatry? Sacrifice? Sacrifice? It's the object, right? It's the object. That's what differentiates worship from idolatry, right? The object doesn't get it because we watch American Idol. American Idol. Yeah. And, and I think that it's probably what, what you see throughout culture is that there's a whole lot of things to which we ascribe worth, so much so that it, we're, it's worthy in our minds of changing our words and our actions to align ourselves with that thing, to put ourselves in better graces with that thing. But where God differentiates actual worship from idolatry is whether or not our actions and words are being guided because of our attention being set on God, the one true God, or anything else. Because if it's not God, it's idolatry. But, they, but the Bible uses the word worship even for idols. Like Old Testament, right? It talks about like how, you know, the, the, the Jews fell away and worshipped, okay, Baal or something mm-hmm. like that. So it does use the word worship in connection with It does definitely use the word worship in connection with idols. And idols were a very specific thing, because remember, most of these cultures had a variety of deities that they would worship in some way, shape, or form. And hold on to that idea, because you're you're basically just like one half step ahead of me every way we go, Dave, which is pretty much the standard way. But we're going to get here. We're going to get there in just a second when we look... Um, when we look at this next passage, actually, you're already there. You're right there. Look at Colossians 3.5. Go to Colossians 3.5. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I've, I've pointed to Colossians 3 a variety of times. This is a passage that's worth a lot of attention. But look at verse, verse 5, starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and, now really pay attention here if you were tuned out, tune back in, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice that there's a transition in Paul's writing in the way in which he's using the word idolatry. Historically, a Jew would look at that and think, because they were still dealing, like Jesse referenced this morning, they were still dealing with meat sacrifice to idols. They were still surrounded by people that had physical items that they were worshiping, wooden and metal, and uh, uh, that were, they had statues that they were bowing down to that were idols. But Paul is now introducing a new idea of what is idolatry. And the idea is not the bowing down to something made out of wood and metal. The idea is covetousness, which if I, when I was young, 
and I looked at the Ten Commandments, the one that I seemed to worry about least, like the one that seemed like the one you could, that you had to worry about the least, like, yeah, you don't want to murder, right? And you definitely don't want to bow down to an idol, but thou shalt not covet was kind of like, yeah, you know, that's not necessarily that big of a deal. But Paul points out that covetousness becomes the core of our idolatry. In, in essence, when we, just for a quick definition of covetousness, when we desire something so strongly that is not our own, it causes us to redirect our words and actions and attribute worth to something more than our God, which is in it, at its core idolatry. We are always, unfortunately, we are always needing to be vigilant about the reality that you and I are born worshipers, but we have a tendency to worship all kinds of things other than God. It is greed. Okay. That definitely the same types of idea. Yeah, definitely the same type that's in there. That's why I want to write down and be clear about point D, that Christian worship must at its core express the utmost, utmost worth to Yahweh. The utmost worth to Yahweh. And utmost is the key word there. It is not difficult to see that we are made to be worshipers. We obsess about all kinds of things. All kinds of things. The, the guys that are not worried about their clothes and their cars are obsessed with who's winning what football game and can tell you all kinds of statistics about them. They are ascribing so much worth that it is the thing that they persistently think about. It's the only thing that they can talk about. That has become an idol for some people. But it's not just that. It, it could be anything. It could be the clothes that they wear. It could be the cars that we drive. It could be the significance that we get from our job. It could be our status in society. We are at our core worshipers, but we are, as the song says, one of my favorite songs, we are prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. I'm going to worship something, like it or not. I'm going to worship something. I need the Spirit to be pulling me back in the direction of worshiping the only entity that will bring me the actual joy that my heart is desiring from that worship, and that is to be worshiping Yahweh. Worship obviously takes a couple of different forms, because I want to talk about it in terms of a discipline, which means that there's always some actions involved. And so I think there's probably an important distinction to draw between music, music, speech, and action as forms of worship. Music, speech, and action. So this is point three here. Music is an obvious form of worship, right? I mean, we won't uh, look up. You could just jot down in your notes Psalm 149 and Psalm 150 back to back, where they're specifically stating, sing to the Lord. Specifically stating... Play these instruments to God. Now, obviously, if you make that a law, you completely miss the point because I can't remember the last time that a timbrel and lyre were part of our music services at any church I've ever uh, gone to, which might mean that maybe I've been to unholy churches everywhere throughout, <laughs> throughout my existence. But the point is, music, we'll get there, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, point, but the point is music is assumed in the Judeo-Christian mindset to somehow be a part of worship. However, I think we understand that worship is not exhausted. The idea of worship is not exhausted just talking about music and its application to the church. This Thursday, I have the honor um, as the elder that kind of works with our worship leadership team as our church to be working through uh, what, what's the best direction and kind of keeping us clear and our focus of what we should be doing uh, as worshipers and as worship leaders. But all of the people that will be coming to that meeting all understand that though music plays an important role, it is not the most important thing when it comes to worship. And what we need to be recognizing is we have this bigger vision of what it means to help guide our people at this church into being worshipers and how we can use music and other tools for that. Inevitably, though, there are also, we've talked multiple times about the words that we use, the speech that we use. Um, Like if you look at Psalm 29, we'll just look over there real quick because it's a really, uh, really short psalm. or at least the portion of it that we're going to look at. <clears throat> psalm 29 says this. So remember, it was other psalms that we were looking at in which we were establishing that music is a part of worship. But in Psalm 29, we have, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness that there are very clear statements here saying that you must, with your words, associate God with the greatness that he is. You must, with your words, talk of his glory and strength because it is glory that is due his name. Verse 2, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The way in which we talk about God is a part of our worship action. I'm sorry, part of our worship. But at the same time, We're going to look again at a passage that we've looked at a variety of times. We know that worship is not just music. It's not just our words. But Romans 12.1 adds another component. You remember? By this point, you ought to be fairly familiar with this verse. Romans 12.1 is a very common verse that we've addressed. After explaining the righteousness of God as it has come to us in Jesus in the first 11 chapters. Paul then makes a transition in Romans 12, 1, and says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or some versions say reasonable act of what? Worship. Do you see any reference here of singing? See any reference here of singing? Nope, I don't. Um, Do you see any reference here of saying specific things about God? No, it's not there. Instead, it's the presentation of my body as a living sacrifice in such a way that is holy and acceptable to God. This is what spiritual and reasonable worship is. The way in which I live my life is the only reasonable response of worship to God. And it is there that I feel like the sacrifice idea really starts to show itself, right? 
I mean, we've got a phrase in our society that talk is cheap, right? You can, you can say about how great God is, and that's important. But where the rubber meets the road is, are you ascribing worth to God in the way that you persistently act, in the way in which you are presenting your life, your physical life? And therein, I think, is where we really start to see sacrifice. Now, I think for some people, music can also be a sacrifice, right? For those of us, we, we have become a society where we really like professionalism. We really like paying people to do things for us, right? So um, it's pretty rare. I grew up still in the, la- the kind of the last part of a generation where having your kids take music lessons was part of a well-rounded education, like everybody went to music. That's going by the wayside. Our society sees science and math as more important, and so we're devoting more attention to science and math, and we're devoting less attention to the arts. Um, That's a whole different conversation that I think is worth having at some point, whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. But a byproduct of that is that less and less people know anything about music and can do anything with music, despite the fact that their life is flooded with professionally produced music. And as a result of you being flooded, you live your life to a soundtrack. Most people, especially if they're under the age of 30, live their life with consistent, you can't drive anywhere without music being played. You can't go to any office anywhere where there's not music in the background, any restaurant, any store. Music is always being played. There's a constant musical soundtrack. If you cannot produce quality music, you immediately find yourself to be a failure and you go the opposite direction. So when you then show up to church and there's someone up at church saying, sing along, most people now sing about this loud and don't want to move because someone might look at me, which would cause them to start listening to me and realize that the quality of my voice is somewhat lacking when compared to what we hear on the radio on a daily basis. Right? The, our relationship to, to music has drastically changed. Why do I spend so much time with this? Part of it is because I've spent a significant portion of my ministry life as a musician and tried to understand what, what does that mean? Separate conversation, but relevant. For those of us that have not had that experience, I have to ask myself, if music seems to be an assumed part of worship, At minimum, when we start talking about the spiritual disciplines, it might be helpful for us to take a look at when we gather and use music as a church, that the way in which we use music might require some sacrifice. It might require some discomfort, and it might require some discipline in order to be able to use it effectively as a corporate discipline. An idea I want to throw out there. As a result, I want to finish this section on worship by talking about private versus corporate worship. Notice that what we've said is that everything that we've said about worship so far until this last transitionary point, you could worship just as a private individual, right? You can, you can worship by yourself using music. You can worship by yourself using your words. You worship by yourself in the way that you sacrifice within your life. And point A here, private worship is an issue of holiness, right? The way in which you devote yourself to God, the way in which you talk about God. Private worship is an issue of holiness, but it's in corporate worship where we have an issue of discipline. 
When we look at worship as a corporate discipline, this is where it probably will require a little bit more of a disciplined approach of how I'm going to worship in a corporate setting. And and when I say corporate setting, I should probably define this. Uh, I don't mean like in a business setting. I don't mean those words in terms of synonymous with one another. I mean in uh, in terms of in a public gathering. You know, meditation is a private discipline. It's something that you do with just you and God. Worship can be a private practice, but what I want to talk about for the rest of the time in which we address worship, I want to talk about what it looks like to implement worship as a public discipline, as a corporate discipline. Corporate worship uh, has some really unique factors, and a lot of them can probably be best explained as we look at the abrasion that comes with our preferences, our preferences, okay? And remember, when I'm talking about worship, I'm not just talking just about music. I've showed you the fuller picture of worship, but our preferences have a tendency to become abraded when we try to implement it as a corporate discipline. We have preferences in worship modes, that's point one. Preferences in worship modes. I actually wrote the word modality, but that's completely unnecessary. That's just fancy for being fancy's sake. Think about it. Is that like Nope, we'll get there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. I, <laughs> I, I want to talk about it more in terms of ways in which people might publicly worship. If you are familiar especially with the Old Testament text, what are ways in which people publicly worshipped that you can remember from reading Old Testament texts? Publicly ascribed worth to God. They brought animals and did what with them? They brutally slayed them, right? Okay, so that was a a very um, experience. Experiential experience is what I was just about to say. That was a, that, that was a drastic experience, right? But, you know, the other thing with that, though, that tested, I think, their honesty or integrity, right? Because you get this a little bit, is did they bring, like, the first fruit, right? Did they bring the unblemished lamb, or did they actually try to sneak in the lamb that really, you know... Okay, but you're bringing up an important point that we want to probably add to our list, is that part of public worship... Uh, in an Old Testament mindset was to bring your best, right? right? To bring the first part of your crop or the best unblemished animal that you had. That was definitely part of it as well. What else? What other expressions or modes of worship do you remember seeing in the Old Testament? Raising of the hands. Okay, raising of the hands were there. Standing. Yeah. What's that? Standing. Okay, Sometimes all right. Laying on, their face. laying on faces. Sure, yeah. What else? Writing good lyrics. Okay, writing, writing out poetry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of dancing in the Old Testament. Very difficult for some denominations to handle because, yeah, yeah. But but dancing was significantly uh, a part of Old Testament worship. There, there's a variety of, of ways in which worship shows itself, and as you start to explore what it looks like in a corporate setting, you start seeing expressions of art, maybe the physical arts, 
being made as an expression of worship. You start seeing dancing being used. I don't know if you've ever attended a church that uses dance as part of its worship to God. Um, there are times in which uh, I think you might even be able to make the argument that the guided interaction with one another can be an expression of worship. Guided times where uh, we, are, we try to turn the body towards one another as we ascribe worth to God, encouraging people to step slightly out of their comfort shell and, and instead, comfort zone, step out of their shell or comfort zone, mixed metaphor, I apologize there. <laughs> Uh, but, to, but to be guided in that process of ascribing worth to God in that way. And sometimes some of those things just feel odd to us, right? The first time I went to a church and I saw the flag-waving people. Have you seen flag wavers? Have you been to a flag waver church? That was very weird to me. Very weird to me. But the more I actually I explored the church globally... And the more I got exposed to the different ways in which people worship, the more I started to see the beauty in the differences, right? You go to a banjo playing church and everybody loves stomping their feet along with the banjo. There's something magical in that, right? You go to a primarily African-American church and you see the way that they dance and sing and sway and there's like 17-part harmonies with every single song and people are singing loud, it hurts your ears, and they're singing for a really long time. That's weird when you come from... Yeah, you, you might... Yeah, you might see that. Or, or going to a, a church maybe on the complete other side where things are almost like the Benedictine monks in terms of it, the solemnity and the, very, and the stillness. I, the point that I want to bring out here is that I think when we recognize that we are at tension with a mode of worship, before we start questioning the mode, we first should probably question, why is it that we have tension with this mode? And allow the spirit to be turning inside of us and addressing, is this just a, a preference issue for me? Or is this actually, uh, is there something more that's going on here that I need to learn about? And this is where the, the discipline of worship starts coming in, where instead of you going, well, I just don't like that, so you leave, you explore that and say, what is there to learn from this as a worship expression? And what is this, or what is it about this that makes uh, this church thrive? Things like that. Yeah. I mean, different passages were read from the Bible, different sermons were preached, different, you know what I mean? But there was an order of how you approached God. Yeah. And how you prepared the people for, you know. And I would say that there's still, like, some people would look at that and go, man, that's far too rigid and structured, and how can that be the worship of God? And yet, I have experienced that and can tell you that there is an innate beauty to that when done with the right heart, right? Because... All of it, I mean, I don't want to necessarily sound too relativistic, but when it comes down to it, all of these modes of worship can have something very beautiful within them when they're employed correctly. Yeah, with, a, with a sincere heart instead of... Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. 
Which kind of leads us to point two. I mean, it's a parallel point, but preference in music styles. And maybe this is a point that I bring up primarily because as a musician in the church, this has been the war that I have had to fight for a while. Um, I have been the, the pastor at a church that took it from one type of music style on one weekend and the next weekend it became a completely different type of music style and became the pastor at that helm to, uh, to continually be that worship leader and continue with that. And that brought all kinds of joyous opportunities for me to flex and grow as people struggled with that drastic change occurring. Music styles have a very deep-rooted um, effect on people because they may have grown up with one type of music and they think that another type of music can't possibly be the worship of God. But that's where I would refer you back to what we've talked about in terms of worship modes. The, the music styles that might be used in corporate worship, they fall subject to the, discussion, the same discussion of what's the most appropriate mode of worship for what's going on. Wouldn't the uh, concept of sermon I think it's probably more interesting to ask the reverse of when did, uh, when did the concept of when people gather music became, because it was always during the Sabbath period, always some type of reading of scripture and explaining of scripture that's always been a part of it. But it was when we started to have the formalized reading and teaching of scripture with music together, Whereas the music used to be a separate portion, and we'll talk about that um, when we talk about celebration. Like so I said, they're they, kind of intertwined. They, in the Old Testament, when they went to like do the sacrifices, the animals, like on the feast day or whatever, they were getting like sermons on those days too. Uh, no, so yeah, so it, it was kind of. When you would go to make a sacrifice, the sacrifice was your act of worship. There wasn't necessarily a teaching moment of that. But the synagogue moments that one would attend on the Sabbath would inherently have a teaching component with it. So each of them were separate actions from one another. And they wouldn't inherently have music as part. That's sort of at the heart of my question. Like, you go way back in the Old Testament, you don't really see the synagogue concept. I haven't picked up on it. You see that it obviously existed pre-Christ, mm -hmm. but it's not really, I don't really remember. Well, that was yeah, my I, question. I, I, when did the synagogue yeah. begin to I think that's a completely fair question for which I have um, not enough knowledge or time to answer right now. But I think that is actually an important question because it's not, a synagogue meeting per se is not commanded Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not commanded by the Levitical law. But it, but it became part of the practice that they did, clearly pre-Jesus, such that it was assumed they would do that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, for the sake of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press on the gas pedal here. Um, the, the last point that I want to make is that obviously it, if you're going to have a difference in modes of worship and maybe even music styles, you're going to see uh, the difficulty that comes from preferences in physical expressions of worship, physical expressions. 
And instead of jumping into a full-blown conversation on physical expressions, I'm just going to leave you with a Foster quote. Foster quote is on your next page of your handout and says this. We are to present our bodies to God in a posture consistent with the inner spirit in worship. Standing, clapping, dancing, lifting the hands, lifting the head. Those are postures consistent with the spirit of praise. To sit still looking dour is simply not appropriate for praise. It's reasonable to expect wholehearted worship to be physical as to expect it to be cerebral. This, maybe I pick this quote and identify with it because I come from a, a definitely a more um, standstill and don't really change your facial expression type of church background, right? And so it may be that this quote really does, it makes complete sense to you because um, you're, you are from a much more boisterous expression of worship. It's still to this day, I've been following Jesus now for 34 years. It's still to this day difficult for me to raise my hands beyond about this level. Okay, I'm just going just gonna to be honest. Yeah? But you'll notice that the majority of the time, they're here, they're ready to be raised. <laughs> they're here. It's, right? They're, they're willing hands. They just, it's the shoulder that I have the problem with. The point is this. The point is simply this, because I'm not going to tell you what your body needs to look like. But the point is this, is that we are more than just one part of our bodies. We are more than just one, one thing as a human. We are body and spirit. We are mind and body. And as a result, orchestrate, or, uh, organizing our body in such a way that reflects what our mind is thinking might be a more effective and probably more accurate way of worship. And that's worth exploring in your discipline of worship. Does your body reflect what's actually going on in your mind? And conversely, if your body seems to be reflecting that you are not worshiping, what does that mean about the exploration of the mind? And I would encourage you to go through that. Not making any accusations, not telling you that your body has to look a certain way, but explore that concept as you go through your discipline of worship. Now, as we've talked about worship, we've inevitably crisscrossed over this last component here that I want to cover. Because when we talk about worship, inevitably there is, a, there is an idea of joy, expre the expression of joy in our God that, that rises to the surface. Yes, when we are worshiping our God, there are other emotions and expressions that are appropriate. But if you're... Maybe, maybe the discipline of celebration is mostly for people like me that have a tendency to be, if you see a spectrum and you're more on like the quiet, contemplative thinking side that has a tendency to kind of spiral into constant self-evaluation, realizing that you aren't worthy of any type of happiness or joy, and the spiral continues until you face some type of depression. If you're on that side of the fence, hey, jump in my car. I'm the pilot of that car. And, and it's important to me, if you're not on that side, enjoy what God has given you. Uh, but the discipline of celebration speaks to me primarily just in the title, that it is a discipline of celebration, that it is just as much of an important thing for me 
to study scripture as it is for me to celebrate that which I have learned from which I study. It is just as important for me when I experience the discipline, remember we talked about this last week, when I go through the discipline of confession and treating my sin with accuracy and with seriousness, that I finish that time with the joyful expression of celebration that there is mercy and forgiveness for me. It is a practice that I must set my mind toward doing. And God has been commanding it from the get-go. Let's quickly go through this outline here. We don't need to spend as much time on it, because like I said, a lot of this information is crisscrossed as we've talked about worship. But obviously, there's a ton of biblical information that would lead us to the importance of celebration. Not the least of which, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice how many feasts and celebrations were commanded by God. I've listed some of them here for you. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, that was also known as the Feast of Headaches, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. Jesus commonly used these feasts as points to stand up and talk. Why? Because everybody was partying and was in the same place. It was one of the best ways to get the biggest audience possible. It was a commanded thing to get together and have feasts and celebrations. We, I, I think that I love your list here, and the one thing I note is the celebratory feasts outnumbered the solemn feasts. Definitely. The celebratory feasts did outnumber the solemn feasts. Like Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, for the sake of time, we won't look up each of these passages, but let me just kind of talk to you about the significances of them, and then you can go back and look at them to mm-hmm. confirm that I'm not leading you astray. But uh, Nehemiah 8.10, where uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are coming back to rebuild Jerusalem, and Ezra reads the law in front of the people, and the people have a fantastic reaction not common to the Jews. They hear the law and go, holy cow, we've been screwing up big time. And they start to turn to a spirit of mourning. And Nehemiah says, wait, wait, wait. This is appropriate. The very fact that that's the way that you feel is enough. Instead, we are going to make this a joyous feast. Our response will not be to beat our breasts and walk away in sackcloth and ashes. Instead, go home, get your best wine, get your best food. It's time for the joy of the Lord to be our strength as a people. It's interesting. In John 15, 11, Jesus says very specifically, John 15 is another passage that you should focus a lot of your meditation time on. Jesus being the vine and we being the, we being the branches. But Jesus says, I'm telling you this, that your joy might be complete. Jesus telling them that joy was an important component of people's lives. And that was what he was trying to facilitate. I'm sure you've heard this idea before as well in Luke, uh, that's expressed in Luke 6, through 35, that Jesus actually... Because of the way in which he interacted with people, it was not uncommon for Jesus to be accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus hung out with sinners so much that he was accused of being part of the party crowd. 
He didn't look anything like the rabbi that people were accusing him of being. Instead, he looked like the town drunk, or to the extent that people could accuse him of it. Did he actually look like that? No, no, no. But people were making that accusation, and there was enough of that information to make that scandal stick a little bit. Celebration is an important part of, of uh, the Christian's life. Look at the quote from Foster here in point 2A when we start talking about what does it look like to facilitate a spirit of celebration. The decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. It's not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. This, again, like I kind of introduced to you, this is probably a quote that might mean a little bit more to me who's kind of on that side of the scale that I talk to you because it's often my conscious thoughts that end up causing me the problem. But where, where Foster is trying to guide me as a discipler in this moment is to guide me further back towards the center of that scale where I'm consciously choosing celebration. And there's good reason for doing that. This is the one passage I do want to look at. Look at Philippians 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 14, Paul gives some important instructions to the church at Philippi that start like this. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. That would be a popular poster in your office, right? <laughs> Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You want to be different in the office? You want to be different in the workplace? You want to be different in your work in general? To do things without grumbling and complaining in and of itself causes you to shine like a light in a dark place. Just by choosing celebration, just by choosing to not grumble and complain in the, in the response to what it is that you're doing. You see, and this is point C here, key, the key part of celebration is gratitude. The key part of celebration is gratitude. And gratitude requires that we pay attention to blessings. But when we facilitate gratitude, we end up facilitating our own joy, right? I, we have a tendency to do this. It doesn't really matter. I, I don't know what your circumstances are for your general workplace, so I'll just point to myself because I know that I, I have to work through this process on a daily basis as well. But it is so easy for me and the other guys that I work with to complain about our work on a daily basis. It's really easy because people have a tendency to call with some really dumb things and demand us to fix their problems. And we just have a tendency to go, where did people's ability to fix their own problems go? Why am I having to talk to your neighbor about his barking dog? Why did you call the police about your neighbor's barking dog? No one cares. Deal with it, right? That's the struggle. <laughs> that's, the, that's the struggle that we have. And I will tell you that the majority of the guys that I work with, will, that's, that's where it will stop, right? 
And I'm not saying that I do it every time, but I will tell you that I've been making a conscious effort to just try to make little, little expressions into those moments of being like, well, I don't have to go scrape a body off the street. <laughs> Welp, I, I'm probably not going to get shot at at this call. Well, and then you start to realize, you start to realize that sometimes, that, you know, have you ever really explored mentally the phrase, it can always be worse? I guarantee you that that is true. And if you struggle with finding the ideas of gratitude, maybe start with the discipline of figuring out how it could be worse first, right? And then you realize, holy cow, I've got it really good the majority of the time. When you facilitate that gratitude, it starts to become easier for you to celebrate what God is currently doing in your life, in your relationships, in your workplace, how he's currently using you. And just by simply choosing to not go, go down the path of least resistance that is grumbling, complaining, and taking a negative attitude, you will stand out. Even if you're only halfway competent at your job, the fact that you are positive will make you stand out and your bosses will like you more. the word lights there is luminaries. It's really talking about the stars. Try to go outside on one of our crystal clear nights and ignore the stars against that ebony background. Yeah. That's what he's talking about here. Yeah. <laughs> so let's also talk just about the reality that celebration is not, and this is point D, Celebration is not just self-focused. Celebration, if you're going to really practice it as a discipline, is not just you figuring out how to, be, uh, how to express gratitude for your specific circumstances. That's a great place to start. But in the discipline of celebration, the next step is figuring out how you can be celebrating others, how you can help others celebrate those are two different things, but two things that have kind of had a tendency to be lost on our culture. Once you have figured out how to, and I'm not talking about cheapening somebody's difficulty by going, look on the bright side, right? And we all start singing the Life of Brian song, like, always look on, sorry. Uh, but, instead, but instead, trying to figure out what it looks like for you to celebrate with others the things that are going on in their life, celebrating their victories, now, that's, that can sometimes be difficult, especially, let's say, if you have had an opportunity like I have often had, maybe not often, but I've had, where you're going up for a promotion with somebody else and you don't get promoted and that other person does. There's a fantastic opportunity for you there to be different than everybody else that walks the face of the earth, to legitimately celebrate that person's promotion with them, despite the fact that you didn't get it. Why? Because the one thing that makes you different is that you understand that there is a God that is intimately involved in every single detail of human life. If you didn't get that promotion, it was important that you didn't. Remember that when things don't go the way that you, go according, that you think that the plan should be. If it was important for the kingdom for you to have that promotion, you'd have it. If you don't get it, that's cool too. 
There's important stuff for you to do regardless of that. And that then allows you the freedom to celebrate this other person that got it. Now think of that person's perspective when they have to walk into the office the next day knowing that they beat you out. They're expecting some awkwardness. But instead, they become confronted by you who's legitimately happy that this great thing is happening to them. And you're celebrating with them. Yeah, well, that's on them. But (laughs) that's on them. But being able to celebrate those victories with others can communicate some fantastic things that people are not used to hearing. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and so similarly, we also want to celebrate the important moments for others. This is really important for me personally. Can I be honest? I hate weddings. I don't like going to weddings, which was really difficult when I was a pastor and I was like responsible for doing the weddings. I don't like going to weddings. But it's such an important discipline for me to step outside of what I like or what I care and recognize that this is a pivotal day of joy in the life of these two people in their families and in the uniting of those two people in their families. It is crucial for me to recognize that it's a discipline for me to go and celebrate with those people. No one cares how I feel when I'm going to the wedding. It's not about me. And that's a fantastic opportunity for me to celebrate with those people. That one I celebrated. Yeah, I did when I married her. Yeah, that definitely. It was, it was more just a, a, a giant surprise. I can't believe she said yes. Like, she doesn't even know what she's getting into. But celebrating the important moments of others. So by, we should be able to now see that there's a difference between celebration as a discipline and partying in general. Okay, just so a la, uh, last couple of comments on this. Let me first start by saying that there is worth, it's worthwhile doing uh, to have some type of recreational interaction with people. I'm not saying that parties in general are bad. We're not going to start preaching Jehovah's Witness theology to you and say we're going to stop celebrating birthdays and whatever the case may be. That's not the direction that I'm trying to say with this, that parties are inherently bad. But the world understands partying right? And they've got a different idea of partying than what we're talking about here. So let's just be really clear what we're talking about. Point A, celebration has a specific goal. Celebration has a specific goal. What is that specific goal? I've already written it on your sheet. To focus on gratitude for the actions of God. That's what the specific goal of celebration is. When I am going through this, the discipline of attending a wedding, I am celebrating what God is doing in that moment. When I get to see a baptism in my church in the morning, I'm celebrating that with the person that's being baptized and with the people that are sitting around with me. When, when Dick gets another promotion, because he keeps getting promoted, because everybody loves Dick. Everyone's telling him he's such a great guy, no matter what he, I'm celebrating with him instead of choosing to be jealous about that. That's a <laughs> discipline that I can celebrate with him and and have that joy with him. It is always guided, though, by the specific goal that I am thanking God for the things that are going on around me, not just in my own life, but in the lives of other people. And that allows me to not just think inwardly, but to think outwardly as well. And finally, 
Celebration, and this is, again, probably the same idea, just stated slightly differently. Celebration is guided by the recognition of what God has done. This is why there are certain celebrations that I inherently love. Um, I will argue to the death with anyone that tries to claim that there is any greater celebration than Christmas. Christmas is the greatest time of the year. I love Christmas. I don't love what Christmas has become for our culture, but I'm not going to let that sour me. I'm not going to let them steal it from me because Christmas is the greatest time of the year because I celebrate the birth of the one that should have never come. If it was me, I wouldn't have come. Right? He had a grade up there in trade. That's what said in trade for the joy that was set before him. He came to earth and endured the cross. It's a, it is such a beautiful time. It's not very difficult for me to discipline myself into that. But I, I use that, I use that as, a, as an example that that's an easy time of celebration to focus and refocus and refocus on what God has done during, and what we are celebrating during that time. But that can be applied to a variety of celebrations, right? Uh, if it's a birthday... Think of how different that birthday might be in an environment where you're looking back, you're using the birthday as an anniversary to look back at what God has done in, in that person's life over the last year. It's cheap if it's just the day that I give you the Hallmark card and throw a cake at you. But, but as I, if, if we can go through the effort, right, the, the intentional mental effort of guiding our minds to look at what God has done in that person's life now, that's a celebration of, and I can celebrate with that person looking at what God has done and give gratitude for that moment. If we cultivate that kind of spirit, especially in conjunction with practicing the other spiritual disciplines in our life, think about the type of person that that's going to make, a person that's good at these things that we've just talked about. Ultimately, you're not going to be the useless sad, self-flagellating monk living on a hill, you're going to be a person that's, that's a joy to be around because you recognize that in your relationship with God that you are a light to this world and you are intentionally focused each day with each moment and with each action on how you can be better at that. That's what the spiritual disciplines can do. And as a result, at some point... We will gather together, and I imagine we'll do it a variety of times. We will gather together and continue to celebrate the things that God has done through us. Which brings a close to our spiritual discipline series. Um, like I said at, at multiple times, there are a variety of other disciplines I would encourage you to explore. That, that Richard Foster book on the celebration of disciplines is a really great place to start. But there are books on each of these that I would encourage you to uh, spend some more time on. And uh, Wayne would like to say something. I just want to say, you know, I think one of the things that affects the mode of the things you've talked about tonight are, for me anyway, the God that I was raised with. I was raised with stern. I wouldn't have used the word celebration at all. 
I shared a couple weeks ago when I was preaching that God sat on the throne with a Wayne Wacker in his hand, you know, was ready to, and even after I came to faith, there was this never, I, I didn't see God as a celebrating God, you know, he's, he's pretty stern, pretty, and let's just go back, you mentioned the wedding, you know, for me, until I moved to Truckee, a wedding was, you know, right, you walk down the aisle and we have a reception that's got some stale mints and a little cup of stale nuts and, and some wedding cake that tasted like the cardboard it was sitting on. And, you know, you know the reception probably lasted 30 minutes and everybody was gone. I come to Truckee and there's people kicking out the stops. Well, first of all, you know, I was, I was so guilt-ridden about dancing growing up because, I mean, you know, dancing, you just don't go there. Yeah, it's and, true. And uh, so I'm, I come to Truckee and I, I find myself, I'm now the pastor of a church that's dancing at weddings. <laughs> that there is wine being served at the weddings. That there's good food and people are celebrating and laughing and having a good time. I'll tell you what, for me to step over that barrier, that's happened since I've lived in Truckee. Hmm. And I think a lot of it had to do with that God that was there, that, that I had a picture of. And I think that we can talk about this. Nancy can go back to the, the, the very liturgical, somber, solemn worship. Well, that can, if we're not careful, create a picture of God that it's not meant to create. I mean, it's very deliberate in everything that it's done. If you understand that deliberacy, it's beautiful. But, you know, boy, if you don't get God, you know, and that can affect this celebration. It can affect our worship. It can affect our intimacy with him. Yeah. And uh, I just, I so thank you for this. this sure. Is, this is huge. I mean, it, it, it means a lot to me. Hmm. And I pray that we can be a celebratory people. Because we've got so much to celebrate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I've been on the other side of that fence, and it wasn't fun over there. I didn't enjoy my God over there. Yeah. Yeah, we are, we are surrounded by a world that uh, is desperate for happiness, but certainly doesn't know how to get it, right? And we do. Let's just make sure that we show it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make sure that we re accurately reflect that. And John Piper, you know, he's so fantastic in his mission to say that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And I just think that's... Yeah. What is it? Is it Piper talks about Christian hedonism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Desiring God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just shows you scripturally that that freedom to just delight in the Lord and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Let's thank our God and then we'll be done. God, we thank you that you have given us good reasons for which to be thankful, not the least of which is that we do not deserve your attention and yet you have given it to us in the full. Uh, I ask that we would not take that for granted that even if everything else in our life were going wrong, that we would still have you and we would have your love and we would have your attention. And that would be more than enough for what we would need for joy. And, and yet we thank you that you choose for whatever reason to continue to bless us beyond that.
with regularity. Uh, we are undeserving of it. And so we, we thank you for it. And we ask that our attitudes and words and actions this week would reflect genuine gratitude, genuine celebration, and as a result, that we would be blinding lights in a culture that is filled with darkness, that is seeking all kinds of wrong things that will make them happy, and that we would be able to share with them the truth uh, that would finally bring fulfillment to the soul uh, that we are interacting with. Thank you, and thank you that we have so much to be thankful for. Amen.